How's everyone doing this morning? Yeah? Awesome. Well, before I get started, uh, I've been asked to give an update on um, the Meredith College Chocolate Lounge that we helped um, fund, I guess you could say, last week. Um, Laura Hanlon and I went last Wednesday night, and uh, it was a really interesting experience. We um, showed up, and we went to the student union, and we were kind of in this back corner on the second floor, and to be honest, it was totally, it was pretty dead in there. Um, There's almost no one there, and so I was thinking, you know, we have all this chocolate, what's going to happen? And, and let me tell you, we had, like, an ungodly amount of chocolate. I have never seen so much chocolate in my entire life. Um, we had four tables that we kind of pushed together, and it was, it was covered. Like, I've never, fistfuls of Hershey Kisses. I've never seen so much chocolate in my life. We um, had a bunch of these little, um, the little chocolate chip things, and we melted them in a crock pot, and um, poor Laura, they brought apples um, to dice up for fondue, but they didn't have any knives, and so um, Laura found a plastic knife and I don't know if you've ever tried to cut an apple with a plastic knife. Um, it wasn't designed for that. Um, so I don't know if she got blisters or what. But um, so it's, it's like a quarter till 7. The thing starts at 7. And there's almost no one around. And so I'm just kind of wondering, you know, what's going to happen. But um, that just taught me a lesson. Never underestimate the power of chocolate in women. Um, when, when the clock struck 7... The, these girls came out of the woodwork. I'm, I don't even know where they came from, but it was just like, whoo. I mean, so many women just everywhere. We, Laura is, you know, slicing these apples as quickly as possible. I'm, like, pouring chocolate in the crock pot. And at one point in time, I went over to the girl who organized the event, and, and I said, so are a lot of these girls from Crusade? And she said, no, like four of them maybe. And so I don't, I don't know how they advertise the event or, or if, Women just have, like, a radar. Um, but they, they came, and, um, and we had, fortunately, we had plenty of chocolate for them. I don't know if it, Laura stayed until 8. Um, they were planning on having the event till 10, so I don't know if, if, if it held out until then. Um, and we haven't heard, heard much um, just in terms of how it went in the way of outreach. But um, I do know that the women that, of Crusade were just so blessed that you all took your time to go to the store and, and help support them. And um, I think it really encouraged them in their ministry. They um, all go here. And so it really helped them to feel that the Summit Church does, in fact, care about them and does care about Meredith College. So um, I want to thank you all for doing that. I know it was really last minute, um, but hopefully we will have many more opportunities like that in the future. Well, um, before we get started, I, uh, I want to begin simply by reading the passage that we're going to be talking about this morning. It's Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. Um, but let me just encourage you, I'm going to read this, um, but maybe rather than read along, um, just listen. Um, if you're one of those people that it helps if you close your eyes, feel free to. We won't think you're weird. Um, but I just want you to, there's a lot in this passage, and so I'm going to read it slowly, and I want you to just sort of soak it in. 
Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Up to this point in uh, chapters 1 and 2, Paul has had this, this unflinching, unwavering joy that, as I've talked to some of you about, has actually been sort of difficult to relate to. Um, <laughs> it's hard to understand how in his circumstances he could just be, I don't know if happy-go-lucky is the right word, um, but just, you know, incredibly unflinchingly joyful. Um, his, his tone here, however, is distinctly different. As we talked about in the first chapter, he addresses some people who opposed him, but he does it with a lot of grace and compassion. And that is not the tone that we have here. It's a very, it's a tone of, of open rebuke. Um, you can tell he is visibly angry. And the reason that his tone changes is that in this chapter, instead of talking about joy, he's going to be talking about what kills joy. And that's what we're going to be talking about this morning is what kills your joy. And I'm hoping that by approaching it from this angle, this will be helpful for some of you who have struggled to um, grasp this, this joy in all circumstances. Maybe instead of approaching it from what creates joy, we could approach it from the standpoint of, well, what prevents your joy? Um, so that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. Um, I'm going to open us up in prayer, and then we are going to dive in. <coughs> Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this good, good word that we have to study this morning. And Lord, my heart rejoices at the thought of, of teaching this lesson, and so I pray that my words would captivate these ladies' hearts in the same way that they have captivated mine, that I would speak truth and freedom, the joy that Paul speaks of, that that would become real 
in a very tangible, life-changing way this morning. I pray that you would anoint my words, give them power, and give them authority. We thank you so much that you are here. We love you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. So the first thing we're going to talk about this morning is who was killing Paul's joy. Who was it that caused him to get so angry? Well, these are people that have essentially been hounding Paul his entire career. If you read through the book of Acts, you see over and over again, everywhere Paul goes, he encounters these people. And he experiences so much opposition from them that lots of times they are the reason he has to flee cities. Um, It's also a reason he had to flee Philippi. So who are these people? These people, um, the, the official title, I guess the description you would, would call them, is Judaizers. Um, that's spelled J-U-D-A-I-Z-E-R-S. Uh, you may have encountered this word before, but if you're like me, um, you, you read it and you kind of have a vague understanding of who these people are, but you're not entirely sure what they stand for or what they're about or what's going on, and so... I wanted to um, first explain who are the Judaizers. What were they about? What did they stand for? Well, basically, Judaizers are people who, for all intents and purposes, want everyone to be Jewish. Um, the, The Judaizers can come in sort of different flavors, and some of them are strictly Jewish. Some of them are Jewish Christians. Um, Paul encounters both throughout his career. Um, but the Judaizers who are Christian, they, they claim Christ, they believe in Christ, um, but they, they also believe that Christianity is really just a, a form of, of being Jewish and that it's still necessary for you to obey the law. And so we're going to get into that, to that later, um, but that's sort of what Paul is running up against is these people are, are teaching that um, to be truly Christian, you have to still obey the law. You have to adhere to all of these, these rules and regulations. Um, so that's who the Judaizers are. But what I really want you to remember whenever you hear, hear this term Judaizers, um, in your brain, I want you to equate that with religious people. These are stereotypical religious people. Um, they're just one form. But religious people, um, as we're going to talk about, is just anyone who says you must do something to justify yourself. You have a list of things um, that you must abide by. Um, so in a sense, your, your salvation, your standing before God is measured by something. So we're going we're gonna to talk about that more later but that's who, that's who the Judaizers are. That's who Paul is addressing here. Um, so moving into the actual text, how does Paul respond to these people? Well, we see that he responds quite harshly. Uh, verse 2, he says, Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now, we can tell from his tone that he's not happy, but... Some of this language is lost by our modern sensibilities because we're not in that culture. And so I wanted to tease this language out a little bit for you guys, um, starting with the word dogs. Now, 
dogs back then was a major insult, and that may not um, hit us as hard as it did then because our dogs are like members of our family. Um, in fact, it was kind of ironic. Uh, I have a dog. I have a chihuahua. Um, she's about 10 pounds. And I always said I would never be like one of those people that treats their dog like a baby. Um, and I still am trying not to be that kind of a person. But um, last week, my husband took her to get a rabies vaccination, and she had an allergic reaction to it. And so she's had this huge um, swelling on her back. We have jokingly been calling her Quasimodo because she looks like a hunchback. Um, but because of that, we've had to um, give her, we have to give her 12 and a half milligrams of Benadryl in the morning and at night. And so we have to like saw apart this tiny little Benadryl caplet. And then we also have to give her anti-inflammatory medication, which I have to put in a syringe and squirt down her throat. And um, we've just been sort of coddling her and um, basically treating her like she is our child. Um, but, you know, we... That's pretty typical for our culture. I actually, I heard on the radio uh, at one point a story about a woman who had a pet hedgehog, and she had to give it antipsychotic medicine um, because it was acting psychotic, apparently. And um, I'm kind of like, well, it's a hedgehog. Maybe that's its personality. I don't know. Um, but anyway, all of that to say, um, our, our culture is sort of separated from, from theirs in this regard. Um, so when you think of, when you hear the word dogs, um, instead what you need to think of is wild dogs. Um, this is something, if you've been to a developing country, you've probably seen more of this. Um, these dogs just run free. They don't belong to anyone. Um, they're really mean. They eat trash. They breed openly in public. Um, they are just wild, ravenous, unpleasant, dirty, mean, ugly dogs. And so to call someone a dog is a pretty big insult. But what is particularly interesting about Paul's use of this particular word is that this was commonly how Jews referred to Gentiles. And you might remember, uh, you actually hear this, you see this happen in, in Matthew 15, uh, shockingly, coming from the lips of Jesus, um, in this story, a Canaanite woman, a Gentile, she comes up to Jesus and, and she asks that he would help her um, to heal her daughter. And Jesus responds in a way that um, doesn't really fit with our um, typical touchy-feely, precious moments, Jesus um, he says, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. And to that she responds, yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. What is happening here? Paul is, or Jesus is not, um, he is not intentionally being racist or prejudiced. He's not intentionally feeding into the, the culture's stereotypes of Gentiles. Um, his life proves that he actually did just the opposite. He crossed those boundaries many times. But this is this was essentially a test of her faith, um, kind of saying, you know, God has come for these chosen people. Um, why, you know, should God's grace extend to you? And she passes the test with flying colors and essentially responds by saying, because God's grace is so much bigger 
than this one group of people. God's grace can o- overflow to the entire world. Um, so that's what's happening in this passage, but um, all of this to say, his use of this word dogs, basically in reference to her, was a reflection of the way that Jews viewed Gentiles at that time. And that's why Paul's use of this word is so shocking, is that he is using it in reference to these Jews who think that they are so righteous and that they are so different from the Gentiles. And what he's implying here is basically you are in the same place that you think the Gentiles are. With all of your works righteousness, you have actually furthered yourself. You have pushed yourself away from God rather than drawing yourself near to him. Um, And this is a theme that we're going to see play out more in this chapter, but all of that just from that one little word, dogs. So whenever you encounter that, never think of it the same. Um, So going on, he he calls them evildoers. Um, He also refers to them as mutilators of the flesh. Now, this phrase is actually a play on words. Um, One of the main issues for the Judaizers was circumcision, and there's a good reason for it. Circumcision in the Old Testament, it was a big deal. This was the, the primary way that Jews would physically mark themselves to set themselves apart from the rest of the world. And it, it's in the law. It was important throughout the Old Testament. And so um, a lot of the Jews, though, had, had taken this practice and had so um, integrally linked it with salvation that they could not imagine a world in which God's salvation, God's um, chosen people, would not be marked by circumcision. They just couldn't even conceive of it. And so this keeps on coming up over and over and over again. You see um, Paul wrestling with it with Peter, and there's um, a lot of confusion through this. Um, And so, again, for, for Paul to refer to the practice of um, circumcision by referring to it as mutilation, that was, those were fighting words, I guess you could say. Um, he, he is essentially calling this sacred right that is so important and has been so important throughout Jewish history. He's referring to it as mutilation, as if it's just this pointless self-destruction. I mean, this would have really, this would have gotten him mad. So, He's sort of going for the jugular with these words. This is, really, this is really charged language that Paul is using here. So after he has, um, I, I guess you could say, incited these people and sort of challenged him, challenged them, how does he then um, respond? What, what, how does he justify himself to these people who are persecuting him? Well, at this point, his, his tone sort of changes in a sense. Um, he, instead of just diving into the gospel, he actually presents them with a resume. And this just goes to show how clever Paul is. Um, he's, he's basically responding to the Judaizers. He's starting out by responding on their own terms. And so he's basically saying, all right, if you want to talk righteousness according to the law, let's talk righteousness according to the law. And then he just throws all this whole list, this resume of, of every reason that he has essentially got them beat 
at their own game. He says he was circumcised when he was eight days old, which is according to the law of Moses. So, you know, he started out pretty well. Um, He was of the people of Israel, which means he was, again, Jewish by birth. He wasn't a Gentile who converted, and so he wasn't um, like a second-class Jew, you could say. Um, He was of the tribe of Benjamin. Um, By saying this, he's, he's sort of saying, um, I'm not just a nominal Jew. I, I, I care about my roots. I can trace my lineage. Um, I know where I came from, and the tribe of Benjamin was also a highly favored one. Um, then he says, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews, which sort of sums up those last three attributes. He's, he's saying, I have a distinguished pedigree. Um, then he says, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. So he's, he's saying, you, you think you love the law? I love the law more than anybody else. Um, Regarding zeal, he was a persecutor of the church. So again, he's saying, there, I I was even more zealous than you. I persecuted the church. I killed Christians. And then he tops it all off with this incredible, incredible claim. He says, as for righteousness and the law, blameless. When we think of the law, we tend to think of the Ten Commandments. But really, the Ten Commandments are just kind of a summary of the law. The law itself is composed of over 600 commandments. So for Paul to say, I was blameless according to over 600 different stipulations, that puts him in an extremely elite category. That, that is a nearly impossible claim. So he's saying, you want to talk righteousness? Let's go. I definitely have you beat here. You know, we can talk, but I'm going to win. Um, so he, he levels this at them. And before, um, before we continue, I want to uh, add a, a quick um, side note about this, this particular part, um, because I think it's easy for us to read through this and, and not really relate because... Um, most of us here weren't raised Orthodox Jews. Um, but what's really interesting here is this is Paul's testimony. Um, this is basically where he was before uh, he came to Christ. And it really struck me because it's so different from what we think of testimonies being. You know, we typically think of, I was bad, you know, I was blind, but now I see. And um, just these really dramatic testimonies. Um, But his is just the opposite. Instead of talking about how bad he was before he was a Christian, he's he's actually talking about how good he was before he was a Christian, which I find very comforting because my testimony is a lot like that. I don't have this really dramatic, you know, I was this rebellious kid sort of a story because I wasn't at all. I was actually, my, my story is incredibly boring. And um, I was just a goody two-shoes, never had a rebellious phase, never even, like, thought about having a rebellious phase. And so I um, always kind of felt like my testimony was lame and uh, just didn't have, you know, the oomph that a lot of people's testimony has. And so this, this testimony of Paul's uh, just reminds us that, that every testimony is powerful, And every testimony has an audience that it will take hold of, um, that it will really impact. And as I reflected on this, Paul's audience and and a lot of non-Christians today 
Um, when we talk about non-Christians, we typically say, you know, we, we sort of talk about them as if they're all just really unhappy people, and they're all miserable, and if they could just hear the gospel, you know, then they would sort of wake up. Um, but if you have any non-Christian friends, you probably know that that is not true. In fact, a lot of non-Christians are totally happy with their lives, and they don't think that they need Christ, and everything is good for them. Um, and so if, if we're basically presenting, if the only testimonies that they ever hear is essentially this, um, if you're drowning, Jesus is your life raft kind of a testimony, um, then they'll probably equate it with just another self-help therapy type of a, a faith. Um, it's not necessarily going to take hold with them. Um, that's why we need testimonies of people who say, you, you know, I had the good things in life. I, I, I've had an, a fairly easy life. Um, but the, they still weren't good enough. I still did not find satisfaction. Um, there are good things in life, but God is better. And so we're not always playing into this whole religion is an opiate of the masses kind of ideology. Um, but we, we have, many of us have chosen Christ not because we were necessarily just broken down and at rock bottom, but we chose Christ because, because the gospel is true and because the gospel is freedom. And so I, I want to encourage you, if, if you are like me and you've always thought that you had a lame testimony, um, I just encourage you to own it and to tell people about it because there are people that need to hear it. So that's just the little side note I'm going to shelve now. So back to uh, Paul's little diatribe here. So he's just, he's just kind of stuck it to him. Um, with this, this righteousness talk. And, and at this point, um, you know, they're probably listening. Um, they probably thought all along that Paul was just this total sellout uh, who had just watered down the faith, or um, maybe he, he was just never a very good Jew to begin with, and he has um, obliterated any of those ideas. And so he's, he's sort of silenced them, and he's, he's gotten their attention. They're paying attention. And this is when he really... Um, levels sort of the death blow to their argument. Um, in, in verse 7, he says, but whatever was to my profit, um, all of those things that I had invested my life in and that I thought gave me value and gave me standing before God, whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. I want to focus on that word loss because that's not just worthless. It's worse than worthless. It is destruction. And the reason is this. Classic religion, this, this idea that we need to justify ourselves, it's not just dangerous. It drives us away. From God. It stands between us and the gospel. Classic religion results in, in two different problems that most of us find ourselves sort of back and forth between. Um, if you are caught in this, this performance-based belief system, um, you're going to be back and forth between pride and despair. On the one hand, 
you're going to be, you know, comparing yourself to others um, in a way that will make you prideful. There will always be people whose lives are messier than yours. And it's going to be easy to look at them and say, look how good I'm doing and sort of puff yourself up and feel justified. Um, but the problem there is when you feel justified in yourself, when your confidence is in your flesh, you are unable to grasp grace. Uh, if you remember when Jesus talks about the woman who loves much because she was forgiven much, if you do not understand that you need to be forgiven, you will not love. And so in that sense, pride, it stifles worship. It stifles the joy with which you will approach Christ. It stifles your ability to love him. Um, it stifles your ability to serve God and to serve others without being begrudging about it. And so pride that results from that confidence in the flesh, it, it basically short circuits every spiritual fruit that you will bear. And so this is one way that, that religion um, is, is not just bad, it's, it's, it's a loss because it, it obscures the gospel. You are blind to the goodness of it because you are so proud of yourself. But it also results, religion results in despair. When you're not comparing yourself to others in a way that makes you feel good, you're comparing yourself to others in a way that makes you feel bad. There's always people that who are also better than you, who have it together in a way that you don't, who you feel like you don't measure up to. And so in this sense, religion is just utter misery. And that's also why religion is a loss. Not only does it obscure God's grace, but there's just no joy in it. It just steals your joy. And that is why religion, classic religion, that is what kills joy. It promises something it can't deliver. It is like a bottomless pit that you keep throwing accomplishments into and it is never filled. And I, I've been reflecting on this in my own life um, as I prepared for this morning, just what... What is killing my joy? What, what are the areas in my life that, what are my lists, I guess you could say, that I, I sort of measure myself against? And um, two sort of came to mind. One was my, my performance as a minister, um, kind of how I'm received as a minister and a teacher. Um, that's how I, I judge myself in a lot of ways. And I can see it robbing my joy, ironically, even when I'm preparing to teach you guys or to teach other people, is I feel so much pressure to do a good job and to, um, you know, do something that is worthy of the message and, and to be impressive that the process of preparation becomes miserable and it's full of pressure and there's a lot of anxiety because I can't just be free and teach as an act of worship. Another area that I've noticed in my own life is I, you know, the, the typical term you hear is people-pleasing, um, and, and I think that that is part of it, but honestly, I have this, this tricky system in which I look to other Christians for approval and for affirmation, and, and I think that there, there is a kernel of truth in that, because your friends, you know, they hold you accountable, they um, they are the church, and so they're the hands and feet of Christ. They can reflect back to you um, just how you're doing and where you are. But um, I, I've almost exchanged God's opinion of me for other people's opinion of me um, in sort of a perversion of that. 
Um, I, I am constantly seeking other people's approval as if they reflect God's approval. And that plays out in so many ways. It plays out um, just if I misspeak to someone and I, you know, think I hurt their feelings or that I think I said something stupid or um, if I think I have, I have shown that I'm not a very good wife to my husband, um, like maybe I'm, I'm afraid I've given people the impression that I nag him or whatever, um, I just beat myself up about this, about these people must think this about me, and I just can't let it go because um, I'm thinking, and, you know, that reflects the church and what, what God thinks about me. And so I'm just not free to, to be, not free to live, not free to enjoy my marriage, not free to enjoy my friendships, all these things that, you know, the church is, is the place where you should be free of all of those things. Um, but I'm not. And so when, when I look at these Judaizers, I can't really judge them because I am so much like them. I think in this story, we tend to relate more with Paul than we do with the Judaizers. But honestly, you know, I'm not a persecutor of the church, but I, I'm, I'm more the Judaizers in this story than I am Paul. I, I'm the one who is adding to the gospel. Um, you know, the gospel is, is Jesus plus nothing else. Religion is Jesus plus something else. And I'm constantly between this place of pride and despair, pride and despair, pride and despair, which is why this joy that I read about in Paul's life just seems so unattainable. As I was reflecting on this, I was reminded of the conversion of Martin Luther, which some of you probably know, he is the famous uh, reformer. He um, instigated the Protestant Reformation. What you may not know is that before he was born again, he was actually a monk. So he's living this really holy, you know, sanctified life, and the guy is absolutely miserable. He hates it, <laughs> and he's all the while, you know, striving to live this holy life, while he's doing it, he's becoming more and more bitter towards God. And so I wanted to read you guys an excerpt from, an excerpt from uh, I guess this is his autobiography, um, where he reflects on, on this time. He says, Though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I could not believe that he was placated by my satisfaction. I did not love, yes, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners. And secretly, if not blasphemously, certainly murmuring greatly, I was angry with God. So here you have Martin Luther. He's in a monastery, you know, he's, he's about as good of a Christian as you can be. You know, he sort of cut himself off from all these temptations, and yet he still doesn't feel like he is good enough. And as a result, he um, just gets more and more angry at God for just judging him. But one day, 
he is reading scripture, and he comes upon Romans 1, verse 17. And his reading of this verse not only changes his life, but I think it's fair to say ended up changing the entire course of history. And so I'm just going to read this to you now. Romans 1, verse 17. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And when he read these words, it was like the clouds were lifted, the veil was taken off his eyes, and he realized he'd gotten it all wrong, that righteousness was not about doing, it was about faith. And so he, he writes on this later, he says, Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. And I extolled my sweetest word with a love as great as the hatred with which I had before hated the word righteousness of God. Thus that place in Paul was for me truly the gate to paradise. Like Martin Luther, like the Judaizers, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the truth of our justification, is something that we hear all the time. You know, J.D. preaches that pretty much every Sunday. He presents the gospel. But is it not so difficult to believe And this is something that I personally, I wrestle with all the time. I've been a Christian for years, and still this message that I am justified by faith alone, Jesus plus nothing else, my flesh fights against that. Our human nature fights against it. That's why so many world religions are based upon a system of works righteousness. And if you think that the gospel, that that idea is something that has come easy for you, let me be so bold as to say that you are deceiving yourself. Because by nature, your flesh will resist that message. It is something that we have got to tell ourselves over and over and over again. Because we are constantly tempted to doubt it. And that is why religion is killing our joy. We, a lot of us, are not all the way in. We have not bought into this gospel. We're like some of those Judaizers who claim Christ, but we've mixed some other stuff in as well. And that's why Paul's joy is unattainable to us. We're not letting ourselves have it. So this morning, the question I have for you is, what are you holding on to? What are you adding to the gospel? What is killing your joy? I want you to think on that this morning and talk about it in your groups. I want you to think about the gospel. I want you to think about the doctrine of justification. Um, That is not just a theological term. That is our life. The doctrine of justification is the heart of the gospel. Paul reminds us in verse 9 and 10, we have a righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. We want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. So this morning, I encourage you to meditate on what that means. Meditate on the gospel. Claim it. And this morning, to close, 
I was praying on, I was praying about just how to end this morning and the thing that I felt God really impressed upon me is some of you probably find yourself in the same place as Martin Luther. You have been a Christian for a long time and you are probably a pretty darn good Christian. But your faith does not bring you joy. It brings you pain. It brings you anxiety. It brings you despair. And so if that's where you are, I just want to remind you that the gospel is salvation by faith through the grace of God and nothing, nothing else. I know that you've heard that, and I I know some of you wonder why I'm emphasizing that again, but it is something that I'm still learning. And I know many of you are as well. And so if you feel like you have yet to grasp that, please talk to your table leaders or talk to me. There is a reason that Paul had the joy that he spoke of. It is attainable. And the gospel, not religion, is how we attain it. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for the goodness, the good news of your gospel, that we are justified by nothing else but faith in you. And so, Lord, I pray that whatever these ladies are adding to the gospel, pressure to be a certain kind of wife, a certain kind of mother, a certain kind of Christian, that we would throw those down as loss, that we would recognize that those things stand in the way of the gospel. They do not bring us to it. So let us be women who can rejoice freely because we're not tied down by the religious systems of this world. And let us also be women who tell others about it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So y'all can break up into your groups. And um, does ev- do all the groups have uh, question, discussion questions?